even find in your Bibles the second chapter of Revelation. I think most, if not all of you know, that chapters 2 and 3 comprise seven letters Jesus wrote to Jesus revealed and John wrote, but there are seven less, um, letters from Jesus to the seven churches in Asia Minor. And some of you would know that that basically equates modern-day Turkey. So actually what John does is he's, remember, exiled in the island of Patmos. So what he does is he has Jesus, has him write the letters in a way that's clockwise, starting with Ephesus first. So the person who had the letters would have first went to Ephesus and then right around to the, se- to the seventh church. And so we come to the first of seven, to the church at Ephesus. Notice verse one, to the angel of the church of Ephesus write. And if you remember, we find that uh, Jesus himself is in the midst of the candles, the lampstands, which are the churches. And according to verse two, he has the seven stars, likely here identified as seven angels, or at the end of chapter one, seven angels, likely a reference to the seven ministers representing the eldership of the churches. These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. Now I want to show you in a minute that each of the seven letters starts out with a unique description of Jesus with regards to the needs of that church. Brother, that is such a beautiful point that we just can't really focus on it. Some of you might remember 10 years ago or so, I preached about 30 sermons through these seven letters. And there I sought to show that at some great detail. But you just have to take my word for it. And as we move through it, you'll see each of the churches get a detailed, specific, unique description of Jesus to meet those needs. And we're going to see how and why he's described in the way he is with regards to this church in a moment. Verse 2. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience, and have labored for my name's sake and not become weary. Nevertheless... I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Verse 6. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is is in the midst of the paradise of God. Well, as I said, the letters all start with a description, a detailed, specific, tailor-made description of Jesus with regards to the needs of that church. This one is described as outwardly doing well, and yet inwardly beginning to decline. And so Jesus is described as the one in their midst who knows their hearts. 
And then in uh, all of the letters, there's not only first a description of Jesus, and then there's this um, identification of good things they're doing, commendations, and rebuke with regards to bad things they're doing. And then the letter basically always ends with some form of motivation. So perhaps we can say they all start with a unique description of Jesus suited for that church. He then points out strengths and weaknesses peculiar to that church and then ends with a motivation that ties it all together. This is really the three points of each of the seven letters. But what I want to do uh, with regards to the church at Ephesus, just because there's so much beautiful truth here in these verses, I want to divide it up into four points. And we're going to see a commendation in verses 1 to 3, a rebuke in verse 4. Thirdly, a remedy provided in verse 5, and then a very wonderful motivation in verse 7. Jesus is described as the high priest whose responsibility it was to daily stoke the flame of the lampstand within the first room of the temple that it would always burn continually before the Lord. And that's how he's described. He's described as the high priest who daily would enter into that room and would do two things, would replenish the lamp with oil and would trim the wick. And uh, that would ensure that it would burn brightly and continually. It's, that's it, and that's what Jesus is doing in the seven letters. He's, as it were, by his spirit, walking in the midst of his churches, replenishing their oil and trimming their wicks. He's encouraging them, he's rebuking them, he's warning them, he's motivating them. In short, he's sanctifying them in and through his word. He's communicating fresh oil by the word to his needy churches. Listen to what Spurgeon said. It was the work of the priest to go into the holy place and to trim the seven-branched lamp of gold. His work is not occasional, but constant. That means he didn't do it just once in a month or whenever it needed it. No, it needed it every day. Wearing robes which are at once royal and priestly. He's thinking back to that controversy I mentioned at the end of chapter 1, whether or not his robes were royal or priestly. He combines them. Wearing robes which are at once royal and priestly, he is seen lighting the holy lamps, pouring in the sacred oil and removing impurities which would dim the light. Brethren, that's what Jesus is doing to his churches, and that's what he does to his church at Ephesus. Notice first a commendation, verses 1 to 3. Our Savior's commendation is basically threefold. Notice first in verse 2a, moral purity. Verse to be doctrinal purity. And then verse 3, perseverance. Moral purity, verse 2a. I know your works, your labors, your patience. I'm going to come back to that phrase under the third point, perseverance, and lump it in with verse 3. This is the phrase I'm after at first with regards to moral purity. And that you cannot bear those who are evil. Our Savior commends them for their intolerance. 
You cannot bear those who are evil. That is, you do not suffer or allow impenitent, professing Christians to remain as members in good standing in the church. You cannot bear them. You do not endure them. You do not allow it. Secondly, doctrinal purity. Verse 2b, and you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. Brethren, there was liars in the first century church, and there's liars in the 21st century church. And it's in part the responsibility of the church to test, that is to examine and to compare the teaching of those who claim to be leaders with the writings of the apostles and the prophets. And this is what the church at Ephesus did. They tested, they examined, they compared what these men were saying with what the apostles had already said and what the Old Testament scriptures affirmed. Remember what the Brians did. They checked to make sure what Paul was saying was in keeping with the scriptures. They tested the apostle Paul and found him to be a true apostle. This church tested these men who claimed to be apostles and uh, found them to be liars. In other words, these were people who did not tolerate evil either in practice or doctrine. This was, this was a good church. The church at Ephesus is one of the best churches. It receives the most commendations. In fact, if we just stopped there and didn't go into verse 4, you'd think everything was fine and there wasn't any problems. The Nicolaitans are possibly mentioned in verse 6. It's possible that they're the ones that claim to be Apostles. We don't know who the Nicolaitans were. Uh, we're going to see their mention in uh, the next letter, verse 12, and to the angel of the Lord in Pergamos write, verse 15, thus you have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. So you find bad doctrine, of the, the Nicolaitans had bad doctrine, verse 15, and that bread... Bad practice, verse 6. And both churches hated both the bad practice and the bad doctrine of the Nicolaitans. A sect, a group of, um, of false believers in the first century. Uh, if you know your church history, you know there were a lot of sects or uh, groups of, of false Christians in the second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, in every century, as there is in ours. And the Nicolaitans were one of these early groups. But the Ephesian Christians wouldn't put up with it. They knew their Bibles. And they were listening. Wait a minute. What this guy is saying doesn't match with Malachi. Uh, nor does it match with the oral tradition passed down in terms of what Jesus had taught on earth and his apostles were already beginning to write and circulate the letters among us. Alright, so there's accommodation first with regards to moral purity, secondly doctrinal purity. And then thirdly, verse 3, their perseverance. And that takes us back to the beginning of verse 2. I know your works, your labor, your patience. Verse 3, and you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. 
In other words, all that they did, they continued to do. The triad in verse 2, works, labor, and patience, is repeated in different places in the New Testament. For example, 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 2, Paul talked about how he always gave thanks to God for the Thessalonians and particularly their work of faith, their labor of love, and their patience of hope. In other words, they, la- they worked by faith, they labored because of love, and they endured because of the hope they had that Jesus was coming back. And uh, according to verse 3, the Ephesians persevered in these things. And you have persevered. Now, you know, persevere um, demands opposition. They endured in the face of great opposition. These were some mature Christians. They, they, they were weathered. Um, they, they endured the storms of first century Christianity, the, the liars and the opposition of the world and all that. And yet for all of that opposition, they endured. Jesus says, I know your works. That's a good thing. Jesus is in their midst as the high priest. He knows their hearts. He knows their deeds. He knows their words. And yet... Unfortunately, we have to move on to verse 4 where we find a rebuke. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. That is, they left the love they had for Christ at first when they initially believed. There's different ways in which you can interpret this phrase. I think that's the best way. They left their first love, their chief love. But I think it's predominantly talking about that love they had in the beginning. In other words, brethren, they were doing all the right things, but they had forgotten why. They were morally pure. Nobody could point to their lifestyle and and point out any gross sin. They were still coming to church. They were reading their Bibles. They were outwardly, generally speaking, walking in the, in the ways of, of Christ. They were fulfilling all their marital and societal, vocational duties, ecclesiastical responsibilities. They didn't become liberal theologically. They held to the old paths. They were defending the truth. They wouldn't put up with outward, impenitent evil, either in practice or doctrine. And yet, for all of that, they had slipped away. They slowly eroded from their first love. And so we find here that love is very important. Brother, you can be outwardly moral and have no love on the inside. And Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, you're nothing. You can be doctrinally solid as Edwards, Owen, Boston, and Bunyan combined, minus infant baptism, and have not love, and you're nothing. Why is love so important? Well, that's a big question. 
Jesus, you would think somebody, you you think Jesus would be like, well, you guys are doing so good, you're just kind of slipping on, in the love department, but everything else is in place, I'm just going to let you go and give you a pass. No, he actually says you better change it or else something's going to come and it's going to be very serious. Brother, this is a tremendous thought. As, as good as they were doing and as commanding as he is in general, love is essential. And let me give you a couple of reasons why. Why? First, love is the very essence of holiness or purity. Remember, love is the summation of the law. Love God, love your neighbor. And what is holiness? But heart obedience to the law. That's all it is. It is that. Brother, you can have all the other things, but if you don't have love, you don't have anything, and you don't have holiness. A holy person is a loving person. Now, love biblically defined, obviously. It's not the love of whatever. It's a love that doesn't tolerate evil. It's a love that doesn't tolerate false doctrine. It's a love that will not bear with evil. Remember, just go back and read 1 Corinthians 11. It says in there, one of the marks of love is that it doesn't bear with evil. It doesn't put up with evil. It doesn't tolerate evil in others or in themselves. It's not loving to tolerate evil in in somebody else's life, in the church, or in your own. But when it comes right down to it, brethren, real evangelical Christian holiness equals love. Another reason is because it motivates and compels the soul to labor. And we saw that back in 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 2, your work of faith and your labor. Labor speaks of hard work. Again, facing great opposition, hard work, uphill work. Your labor of love. Why does why do people do the things they do? What, what can motivate? There's a lot of things that can motivate people to do great things, even ugly and nasty things. What can motivate a man to hijack an airplane and to run it into a, a building? What can motivate a Christian to keep his hands, his spiritual hands and heart pure and to serve God in a god hating, godless age, brethren, but love. Love drives the soul. My knowledge of love, my knowledge of his love to me, and my love in turn to him. Remember, we obey him. Why? Why do we obey him, brethren? Because we love him. That's the motive, right? That, that's the fundamental heart motive at the base of it all. That's why we have to have love, because love, love will enable us. Just think of a marriage. What makes the man get up when it's cold outside to, to go to work every day? What makes the mom get up at night when she's tired to feed the baby? It's love. Love for God and love for the baby and love for the wife. Love motivates. And then finally, love blesses the church. Brethren, what? A loveless church isn't a, a very healthy church. Love blesses everybody around us. Selfless, humble, Christian, practical love. 
Now, here as we're still looking at the rebuke of verse 4, I said that you can be outwardly pure and, and sincerely morally upright. You can be doctrinally solid and clear. And you can do all that for a long time. And yet, decline or perhaps we could say have declension with regards to your love for Christ. And let me suggest here a few reasons why that happens. First, we separate truth from Christ. That is, we defend the truth all the while forgetting that Jesus is the truth, the way, the truth, and the life. Brother, and I've seen this, maybe you have, sometimes younger Christians, hopefully it's just more true of them and, and they mature out of it, but they're all on fire for Calvinism. And boy, they can argue the five points of Calvinism, perhaps and usually in some cases more strongly than Calvin himself. <coughs> Now, Calvinism probably outdoes Calvin's Calvinism. Oh, but they can hold it down. They argue and they think it's fun and, and they think they're doing something that's honoring to God and all the while it's very possible that they're defending the truth while forgetting about the truth. People can love to defend the truth but not love the truth himself. One way you can see this is they love to talk about Calvinism, but they don't care to talk about Christ. Or they talk about it in a mechanical way, just an argumentative way. Um, but with little real humility and love for the truth that you're, de- that you're defending. Another reason is because we separate duty, i.e. obedience, that's not a bad word, we separate duty from Christ. That is, we do all the right things, but we forget why. We forget the reason we're doing all the right things. This perhaps can be illustrated in marriage. At first, there's strong love between the newlywed couple. But after a while, they merely go through the motions. They're still faithful to one another. They're still fulfilling their specific obligations in the marital covenant. He's still doing the things he ought to do, and she's still doing the things she ought to do, but they've drifted from or they've left their first love. The love they had at first. Now don't get me wrong. I think here people get confused. Don't confuse that puppy-eyed stuff you have at first with real mature love. It could be 20 years down the road you don't have as much as that, but you have a real deep matured love that's that's very true very possible but here I'm just talking about the fact the, the, the possibility of falling from our first love 
and we're just now two people sharing the same house, raising the same children. That's a tragedy, brother. There's no real hard affection for one another. Now, you, people are different. They express things differently. Some people are more verbally um, reflective of their love. Others are more touchy, whatever, whatever. But you know what I mean. It's possible, isn't it, brethren, for us to be going through the motions in terms of our marriage all the while having left our first love. Our hearts are cold. And if that's true with regards to marriage, then I assure you it's true with regards to Christ. Uh, And I know why, because I've done it. And I can do it easily. I get up, I crank out the sermons, I read my Bible, I make my phone calls, I send my emails, I read my books. All the while, it's tempting to forget why. Why am I doing those things? We can never separate truth from Christ, duty from Christ. But a third reason, we separate conscience from Christ. By this I mean we fail to live our lives in the presence of Christ. Listen to what Jesus said. Because lawlessness will abound, Matthew 24, 12, the love of many will grow cold. In other words, where sin increases, here's a simple principle. Where sin increases, love decreases. Now, that's true. I think what he's talking about is is in the broader sense that people are going to be unloving and filled with wickedness. But it can be true, can't it, on a lower level in our own hearts as Christians. We're just not as cautious and as careful with regards to what we watch, what we say, what we do, what we listen to, as we once were. And our conscience has grown dull and dim because we've severed it from Jesus. We have severed Jesus from both the truth and duty as well as our conscience. And when that happens, brethren, it's very likely you will fall from your first love. Let me just pause here and kind of digress for a second. I think it was a few years ago, we uh, read in our Sunday school class, studied a book by Octavius Winslow on spiritual declension. And this particular gentleman, Richard Brooks, in this very helpful series of commentaries, commentaries, the Wellwind Commentary Series, Wellwind Commentary Series, I always thought it said the Wesleyan commentary series, and I never bought it. And then I saw one of my friend's house, and I said, what do you got this for? He said, well, what's wrong with it? I said, it's Wesleyan. He said, it says, well, when? I, I, I just always assumed it said Wesleyan. But it's not Wesleyan, and it's good. And in it, he says, Octavius Winslow traces several characteristics of declining love so that we might identify them and deal with them. Okay, so here we just want to conduct a little self-examination to see whether or not, to what degree, we've fallen from our first love. Okay, that's my point here. And and, uh, Winslow actually gives more. He selects out 
eight, and these are just good, good, uh, good points to use as a probe to examine our hearts. These are evidences we have or are falling from our first love. God becomes less an object of fervent desire, holy delight, and frequent contemplation. Well, you can talk all about it, brethren. But your heart is cold with regards to it, if you are to be honest. Loss, secondly, of that sweet confidence and simple trust of a child before God. Thirdly, hard thoughts of God with regards to some of his dealings. You have to be honest. You're, you think hard thoughts toward God because he put you in that marriage. Or he gave you that child. Or he didn't give you that job. Or whatever it is. And you know the Bible says that God is good and he loves his people. And yet there's something inside you that just doesn't believe it. Fourthly, duty rather than privilege in spiritual exercises. Now, again, he doesn't, we're not saying that duty is a bad term. He's just saying you, he's just saying instead of wanting to do it, instead of seeing these things as a privilege, you're like, oh, I have to do it. Fifthly. A less tender walk with God. This is really what I was saying with regards to the conscience being severed from Christ. A less tender walk with God, that is to say, less trembling at the thought of offending him, and so lighter views of sin. That's exactly what I was trying to say with regards to that third point. Sixthly, Christ becomes less glorious to the eye and less precious to the heart. Seventhly, love to Christ's people starts to decay. Love to Christ's people starts to decay. You just get sick of these people. And uh, before you know it, it, you're making sweeping statements. These people. These people. Man, these guys. Eighthly, our interest in the advancement and prosperity of Christ's cause begins to wane. You're just not as interested as you once were in helping the church in ways, practically, financially, for example. And you're just not as interested in sharing the gospel with others as you... Brethren, just stop and think. There were times in my life... Well, there are times, if I go through my 24 years... There are times and seasons when a lot of those were true of me. <laughs> Probably if I were to sit down right now and be overly honest, which I'm not going to be, <clears throat> I could find out of that list of eight. I mean, obviously, in one sense, we can see signs of all eight in our lives. But I'm talking about grotesque signs of at least some of those in our own hearts and homes and thus church. Well, we have to move on to the remedy. Thankfully, there's verse 5. And this is the beauty of the Bible, brethren. We're just never left. Remember we said on Sunday morning, the Holy Ghost never comes to convict us, to leave us, but he always comes to convict us, to convert us, to bring us back to Jesus for cleansing and for healing. He actually gives us... Uh, I guess you could divide it in a couple ways. Let's just divide it in two ways with regard to this remedy. Remember, verse 5, and repent. You can remember that with two R's. 
Remember, repent. Notice first, remember. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. fallen. That is, think back to earlier and better days. Think back to those days, brethren, when it was a joy to read your Bible. Or perhaps just go back to that list. Or just you, some of you have, you can get that book, by the way, Octavia Winslow's book on the internet for free. Just type in Octavius Winslow, Spiritual Declension. Go to the chapter on marks of decay of spiritual love, and you'll find all the other ones he lists. And you can, Christian, can you not remember a time when it was better, when it was better with you? You remember a time when you couldn't go a day without telling somebody about Jesus. You remember days when you couldn't wait to get home to read your Bible or that good Christian bio. Now you put on the news and get frustrated with, with what's going on in the world. And the bio has collected dust over months and months and months of neglect. There's an old gospel song that I used to play back right when I got converted. I'm just so thankful, brother, and I got converted where I did, frankly in a drug rehab with a bunch of bones. In fact, most of them proved not even to be true Christians. But all those who professed to be Christians got a better room, a bigger room. So what we did is the four of us just took the corners and we took cardboard boxes and made walls. And so I had neighbors, three of them. There was four of us in the room. We each had our corner. Of course, the worst one was the one that had the door. That, that was mine, actually, at first. I had the corner where the door opened up just put a big cardboard box but nevertheless it was still a bummer and so when I got a little bit of seniority I got to move and eventually I got the far corner but I had it that was the suburbs then <laughs> I was living uptown didn't have anything but this about a couple shirts a couple pairs of pants a few books that's all I had to my name but brother and I had everything And there was a song, it, it, the, the guys were all, they're all black, and so they all were older than me, and they all grew up in gospel music, which I didn't. So the, the music I listened to, is the, the same music I listen to now, by the way, is, was gospel music. And there was an old gospel artist who had a record. Um, his name was Andre Crouch. Maybe some of you remember. He was famous in the 70s and 80s. And Andre Crouch had a record called Take Me Back. Now I'm tempted to sing it. This is basically the refrain. Take me back, dear Lord, to the time when I first received you. Take me back. Enable me, God, to remember when you came into my heart and you changed me. And all things became new, and my heart was so in love with you. Brethren, I almost always reflect upon that. To remember my first love. To remember when God in Christ changed my soul. Well, he doesn't tell us, though, just to remember and leave it there. It's not like we're just, a, oh, yeah, I remember times were better. No, you have to, what's the second thing? Repent. 
You remember in order to repent. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Remember better days, but don't stay in 1994. That's not going to help you in the long term. You have to come back to 2019. And you have to repent. Simply reflecting upon better days isn't enough. Nor is merely complaining about our present condition. Right? That's what we do. We say, man, I'm a mess. And we get all discouraged and all frustrated. And then we go into the next day and we look in the mirror and we say, the mirror of God's word, and we say, man, I'm a mess. And we get all frustrated and we say, days, there were better days. And then we go into the next day and we look into the mirror of God's word and we say, man, I'm a mess. But we do little to change it. It's the same physically, isn't it? We want to get healthy physically, and we complain about our poor health, but what do we do about it? Probably nothing. Complain. Brother, complaining about it is not going to help. Let me illustrate it this way. Ladies, you, you'll know this illustration, and children probably too, and men, you should. Let's say you come into your basement, and it's an absolute mess. Laundry everywhere, groceries everywhere, everything everywhere. And you just open it up and say, wow, this is crazy. And you just close it and go back upstairs. How do you clean a room that's filled with mess? Here's how you do it. One item at a time. You stand at the, you stand at the edge of the, of, the, of the stairs and you pick up the first thing you see. And then you pick up the second thing and the third thing and the fourth thing. And you know what? In about 15, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, You've cleared a little path there, at least a path to the laundry, <laughs> to the laundry machine. <laughs> and then before you know it, it's lunch and you're half done and tomorrow you have, brother, that's how you do it, right? You can either do it that way or you can do it like the way we're tempted to do it and just close and act like it doesn't exist, but your conscience is going to trouble you. That's how we are spiritually. We just, as it were, close the door. We just, as it were, closed the door and don't want to think about it. But this is not what John, or this is not what Jesus has John to write to the church at Ephesus. Repent, listen, and do the first works. This is what we have to do. We have to repent. That is, we have to humble ourselves, acknowledge our faults. And we have to stop doing the things that have caused this spiritual declension and start doing the things in the first place that caused a healthy heart. Let me just put it this way. Let me illustrate it. When I was uh, in the mission, I was mentioning after I was a Christian, there was a guy there who was um, uh, an older fella. And he wanted to get healthy, and he at times was a bodybuilder. So whenever he got off heroin, he was a heroin addict. Whenever he got off drugs, he would always beef up, sometimes as much as 100 pounds. Then he would lose it all through his drug abuse. Well, right when I became Christian in 94, about 95, he professed to be Christian again, and then he ended up falling back away. But for almost one year, or at least one extended summer, we went almost every day to the gym together, and we trained. And my body felt as good as it ever felt 
in my whole life. I was as healthy as I, I've ever been. And so now as I reflect upon that 30 years ago or 25 years ago, what do I have to do to get back to that? Well, I'm never going to get back to that probably, but what can I do to get back to that generally? I have to what? Go back and do the first works again. Basically, I have to go back to do the same things that I did back then to get where I was. Rather, it's really not all that complicated. I know what, it, what I did by God's grace to have a happy, healthy heart back in 1994. And I need to do the same things. I need to repent from everything that's going to hinder me from getting there. And I need to, to start doing the things that got me there. Brother and sister, you know what you need to stop doing in order to regain that first love. And you know what you need to start doing. And that's exactly what our Savior tells this church. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works. The works you did to get in the place that you used to be. But he doesn't even leave them there, does he? But he gives them this twofold motivation. And the first is a sober threat, the end of verse 5. And the second is a blessed promise in verse 7. Look at the sober threat. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works. Or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place Unless you repent. Brethren, loveless religion isn't something Jesus tolerates. I think what he means when he says remove your lampstand, he means he would remove from them what made them a church. What made them a church? The fact that Christ was there and the Holy Spirit or the oil was there. I think what he's saying is, unless you repent, I will cease filling the lampstand with oil. Now, when that happens, it's virtually Jesus unchurching a church. Now, that doesn't mean they... They immediately stop meeting. Brethren, there's a lot of churches, quote unquote, that meet every Sunday who a long time ago have had the lampstand removed. There's no spirit there. Jesus isn't there. The word isn't there. It's just a bunch of social do-gooders. Social liberalism is one step toward theological liberalism. They, they almost always go into each other. The one leads to the other. And that's why you have denominations like the Church of God in Christ, United Methodists. Not every single church, but generally speaking, those churches have a long time ago had their lampstands removed. And there's buildings scattered. There's, they have churches everywhere. But, they're, but they're, they're churches that Jesus unchurched. 
Let me just put it like that. Because they did not repent and do their first works. Listen to what Matthew Henry said. If the presence of Christ's grace and spirit be slighted, we may expect him to come suddenly and surprisingly upon impenitent churches. He will unchurch them. That's where I got my phrase from. And take away his gospel, his ministers, and his ordinances from them. So all they now have is but a shell. I think this is what Jesus, this is what Jesus is threatening. It is a threat. This church in Ephesus. But then he has a positive, what I'm calling a blessed promise. Verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Now, as I said, remember, these letters were to be read openly by the, quote, angels or stars, the ministers of the churches. These letters were read in public worship. If somebody just said, maybe a Christian lived in Ephesus and they said, you know what? That church down the street got too many hypocrites in it. I don't think I'm even going to go and worship with them. I can be a Christian on my own. Well, this letter would have been read in that church and you would have missed out. Because the, the text doesn't say, read it in the church at Ephesus. It's written to the minister and then, oh, and read it to that guy down the street that doesn't go to church. No, Christians go to church. Period. And this was to be read in the church on the Lord's day. And notice what our Savior says. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit, we could paraphrase it like this, is saying to the churches. In other words, when the, when the letter was read, it was the voice of God to the people. God still speaks, brethren. He speaks to us in and through his word. We come to church to hear what God says to us. We open our Bibles at home to hear the voice of God. It's not what the Spirit has said to the churches. It's what the Spirit is saying to the churches. God speaks to his churches through his ministers with his word. And some have ears to hear it and some don't. Now, obviously, what our Savior does here, he is referring back to the original paradise that had in it the tree of life. Now, remember when man sinned, God banished him from the garden Lest man reach out and eat from the tree of life. What does it say? And live forever. In other words, he hadn't, he hadn't yet eaten from the tree of life. He would have eaten from it had he passed the test. Had he obeyed God. And that's why he was banished from the garden. Lest, unless he reach out and eat it as he did the other tree. And so man is banished from the tree of life because of his sin, and he has access to the tree of life in Christ. 
Perhaps we can say Christ as the last Adam or the second man. He perfectly obeys God and earns access back into the garden. And this is really an argument, brethren, for a closed canon because the book of Revelation ends as the book of Genesis begins. Paradise lost, Genesis. Paradise regained, Revelation. And there's nothing after it. Listen to what Albert Barnes says. In the paradise regained, the blessings of the paradise lost will be more than recovered. For man may now live forever in a far higher and more blessed state than his would have been in Eden. Because remember that condition that man was made in in the original paradise was mutable. And they had a snake. Uh, this, the serpent was in that garden. This garden the, is serpentless serpent free and uh, those in it are on immutable ground it's a better you know what here it is in short the end is better than the beginning what Jesus gets us is better than what Adam lost us but you might be asking doesn't the text say that only those who endure get it to him who overcomes. This goes back to what I said. It presupposes opposition. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life. It seems like Jesus says, only those who endure to the end will eat the tree. That is, have life that's eternal. And here's why it sounds like that. Because it's exactly what he says. And here's the key though, brethren. It's really in a phrase you may not think of. It's the verse at the beginning of the verse. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. In other words, in the church at Ephesus, like in any church, there's those who are spiritually able to hear the word and those who are spiritually deaf. All Christians have had their ears opened. And here's my point. Everybody who has their ear open will always hear the voice of Jesus in his word. And he will err, but he will be recovered. He'll hear everything Jesus says. The commendations as well as the rebuke as well as the remedy because of the motivations. These motivations will compel him by grace to endure to the end. Or perhaps I can put it like this. Every person who has had their ears opened will always have their ears opened and will persevere by God's grace to the end. Because they hear the voice of the shepherd and he uses his word, brethren, to, to correct us, to rebuke us, to encourage us, to sanctify us, and to persevere us. And so the end is better than the beginning. Brethren, what a wonderful motivation for us to take to heart our Savior's rebuke and by his grace to comply with his remedy. Well, we have to leave it at that. We started by singing uh, hymn 548. Let's just go back there for a second. 